this should have been, you know, a big bright point for all of us. But you know, there was this dark cloud over us because we lost a team member, and you know, like we're sitting, we're here at base camp, we're safe, but we're all having random cries all the time, just thinking about Kevin, thinking about our teammates, thinking about what has happened. That's the voice of Chris Dare. He survived one of the deadliest climbing seasons on Mount Everest. It, it literally was a, a war zone out there. I'm Nikki Wright-Meyer, and this is Why. The long, excruciating line to the top of the world, 8,850 meters up. It is now a famous photo showing the traffic jam on Mount Everest this climbing season. The photo capturing the queue of climbers, hundreds of them waiting to ascend the summit during a limited window of good weather. So far this year, 11 people have died on the mountain. 11 people have died this climbing season, making it one of the deadliest to date. I should say it has become a death race there. sound that you hear probably doesn't sound like much, but it's the sound of the wind blowing from the top of Mount Everest as climbers filmed what can only really be described as chaos around them. Long lines of climbers and their Sherpas hoping to reach the summit, not all of them making it though. One of those climbers in that now infamous lineup that you've probably seen pictures of on the news or online was Chris Dare. He's an experienced mountain climber from British Columbia. Chris's goal was to climb all seven of the world's highest peaks, and he'd completed six thus far. Mount Everest, which he intended to climb in May of 2019, would be the final peak. He planned for two years, but little did he know, this would be the fourth deadliest climbing season ever on the mountain. Seems kind of unbelievable, but I was actually able to connect with Chris and speak to him while he was still at Mount Everest Base Camp. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I, I can't believe that I'm talking to you right now from Everest. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, pretty far away, but uh, making it work. I, uh, I'm having a bit of a hard time wrapping my mind around what that must be like. So um, right now I'm at uh, the base camp on the Chinese side at 5,200 meters. We're still very high. It's only 11% oxygen uh, compared to sea level, um, but we are packing up. And we are going to depart uh, base camp tomorrow to try to, uh, to get out of the area, to get back to lower altitude. 5,200 meters is still significant altitude. You cannot recover here. Our team, we were sleeping without oxygen at 8,300 meters because we ran out. We got battered that entire night. We have descended to advanced base camp to base camp, but we're still, we're still not feeling well. Uh, a lot of us are coughing, like fluid up. We need to get out of here and, and get back to sea level. So right now we're packing up. We're going to be departing tomorrow morning. 
we'll be back in Kathmandu, which is a lot lower. That's about a thousand meters compared to where we are now. Well, if you don't mind, maybe we can start by you taking me back a few days ago to last week when you climbed Everest and the months leading up to that, really, because it takes quite a bit of preparation before you even try for the summit. Okay, so on Everest, uh, it's obviously a very high mountain, 8,848 meters. Uh, you can't just show up and expect to, you know, climb in a week. If you go from sea level to that height, you're going to die. Your body's not ready. Uh, your lungs aren't ready. Your brain and everything is not ready. So what happens is uh, climbers typically come to Everest, either from the north in Tibet from China or from the south in Nepal, uh, in around mid-April, and you train for weather window in kind of mid-May. So by training, you're constantly moving up and down the mountain, trying to get used to the thin air, trying to create more red blood cells, trying to maintain fitness so that uh, when that weather window comes uh, in mid-May, then you're ready to go. And what, what the weather window is, is... It's a time where the jet stream moves from the peak of the mountain and it moves a little bit aside so that the winds are low enough and the temperature is slightly warm enough that a human can make it to the top because that jet stream is 100 kilometers an hour. No one can get up there when it's blowing that hard. So you're preparing until that weather window to be able to make that summit attempt. So 2018... Uh, was the best weather window that Everest ever had. It was about 10 days straight of no wind that started around mid-May. And so we're hoping and people are thinking that maybe 2019 would be the same. However, 2019 turned to be a lot different. It turned out to be the complete opposite. The weather window predicted by meteorologists and all the centers and all the guide companies was looking to be one day, the 23rd of May. What that did was it forced almost everybody on the north side of Everest from Tibet, where I am, to try to summit in one day. And that is a recipe for disaster. You began your ascent early on summit day because you knew that everybody would try to make this weather window. You left early, but that didn't necessarily go as planned because everybody else decided to leave early too, didn't they? Right. So we were positioned at Camp 3, which is the highest camp, 8,300 meters, ready for a summit push, because we had built up to that altitude over about five, six days from base camp. We had been doing rotations. We had been training. We were ready. So we got up to Camp 3 on the evening of the 22nd. Typically, the timing for a summit push is about midnight, and then you get to that summit around 6 to nine hours. So you're standing on the summit around 6 a.m., you know, when the sun rises and you can see things, 6 a.m., and then it'll take you three hours to get down. So we had decided that we're going to leave two hours early, 10 o'clock instead of midnight, to try to beat the rush. But the other groups decided that they were also going to leave early, but earlier. So they left at like five hours early, seven hours early. This created huge bottlenecks for our team. And the bottlenecks are on the north side. There's, it's called the three steps. Each step is a section of vertical climbing. You cannot pass another climber. 
to go up that step is very slow. It's very technical. And you're usually waiting if there's other people there, even like five to 10 people, you might be waiting an hour, an hour and a half at each step. And that's not just going up. That's also when you have to go back down. So that's six to nine hours I was talking about to try to get this normally for timing. And I was the fastest of our group. It took me, it took me 11 and a half to get to, to the summit. So that's very dangerous because now you're exposed in the death zone, which is any altitude above 8,000 meters is the death zone where your body cannot process food. Your body starts eating its own muscle. You just cannot function up there. Even with supplemental oxygen, you're not supposed to be there. So I was exposed for almost twice as long as I should have been going up and the same thing all the way down. So I was actually camp three to summit to camp three took me 17 hours and that is, is way too long. Um, not only that, get to summit at 9.30 in the morning, that weather window we talked about being one day started to close. So those 60 kilometer winds started coming in, negative 50 degree temperatures came in, just started battering us. If you uh, look at some of the photos that people have been posting, everybody has like windburn on their face. A lot of people have frost nip or frostbite. There were a lot of deaths that day just absolutely horrendous. And the problem as well with being in the death zone for too long is you run out of oxygen. So you provision a certain number of oxygen bottles that you have to carry and a certain flow rate, and you think you're going to have enough time, but then you know what? You get stuck behind other people. You can't pass them. You run out of oxygen. You're in a world of hurt. Without oxygen above 8,000 meters, you are a snail. You are paralyzed. You cannot think. You cannot move. Like, you are totally helpless. Coming up later in this episode. Her Sherpa, as strong as he was trying to be, had to leave her for dead. Chris was a part of a team that went up Mount Everest, but not all of them came back down that day. You're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. Download, stream, and subscribe online now. Can you tell me about the other members of your team? Because the horrendous conditions that you're describing were not just personal to you. There was other climbers on that mountain that day that went through exactly what you did, but not all of them survived. Uh, correct. So... Like I said, our team, we uh, got stuck behind other climbers. We were exposed for longer. We had one climber. Uh, her name is Cam. She's the strongest woman I know. She took, she took 13 hours to get to the summit. 13 hours to get to the summit. Too long. More than double what is recommended. So you can imagine if you take 13 hours to get to the summit, and you try to get down as well, are you going to have enough oxygen? The answer is no. Her Sherpa, as strong as he was trying to be, had to leave her for dead at high above Camp 3 and go get help at lower camps. Cam had zero oxygen, could not move. She found another climber that was dying, took his head torch from him that was brighter than hers and tried to signal to Camp 3 for, to someone to help come help her. And heroically, 
Ralph, the team leader from 360 Expeditions, had caught up with her Sherpa, who made it down to Camp 3, pointed in the direction of the mountain, and he saw that light, and he took the remaining oxygen bottle that we had, and he went up there and tried to save her. He got up to Cam's, Cam's lifeless body. Cam could not stand. She could not grip rope. Her hands were frozen in like a claw position. He ran out of oxygen, but he picked her up, strapped her to his body, rappelled down three pitches, and dragged her into Camp 3. He's an absolute hero because Cam was stuck up there and nobody was going to help her and she was going to die if Ralph didn't go up to save her. Another instance, a team member, Arthur, ran out of oxygen, again, same reason, because of those lines, ran out of oxygen at 8,600 meters. His Sherpa gave his remaining oxygen to Arthur to try to help him. That ran out. They started pleading with other climbers that were passing by if they had any extra oxygen or could help. They either got ignored or said there's no help they could provide. Their lethargic couldn't move. A miracle Sherpa showed up from nowhere, offered oxygen, got Arthur down, took care of him, like absolute miracle. Because again, if Arthur didn't get that oxygen from that random Sherpa, no way he'd survive. No way. We did have a fatality on our team, um, and it's it's a little bit different. Kevin, great guy, the most experienced climber on our team other than Ralph, he's climbed Everest from the south side last year successfully, climbs in India and Pakistan every year, very strong climber, but on our ascent up to Camp 3 in preparation for that summit push, he was not feeling right, something was wrong, he knew it on summit day, I shared a tent with him, he moved 200 meters out of Camp 3 and knew that something was wrong, he made the right call and said, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to go back down, this is not going to work. He got all the way back down to Camp 1 at 7,100 meters, fed, hydrated, went to sleep, and uh, the next morning, still snoring away, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, his Sherpa checked on him, and uh, he had passed away. We don't know why, but, you know, it was absolutely devastating for our team to learn about Kevin, especially because uh, the rest of the team had been stuck at After Summit, exhausted, couldn't move at 8,300 meters. We ran out of oxygen at 8,300 meters trying to survive the night. I had my face pressed into my sleeping bag trying to breathe all night long. And then as we were standing the next day, absolutely exhausted, we learned about Kevin. It was absolutely devastating. This sounds like you're describing a a war zone more than an accomplishment that people aim to do. It's, 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 it's hard to listen to, but obviously being there and going through this is something so seemingly out of this world. How are you doing now with your own mental health? Well, you know what, like, this should have been, you know, a big bright point for all of us, for those that summited and, and made it. But, you know, there was this dark cloud over us because we lost a team member and we all just, we're sitting, we're here at base camp, we're safe, but we're all having random cries all the time. Just thinking about Kevin, thinking about our teammates, thinking about what has happened. It, it literally was a, like a, a war zone out there. And people, when you see them moving at high altitude, exhausted, you're looking at walking wounded there. 
people are, are wa- literally walking wounded. I saw other Sherpas trying to motivate their their climbers to move. They're yelling at them, saying we need to get out of here, dragging them. I saw one uh, small climber being dragged by her hand down the mountain to try to, to try to get her to move. I mean, people were exhausted. It was a long day. There was a lot of injuries. There was, of course, a lot of death. It was a war zone. It really was. And and a lot of us here at base camp were just trying to piece the pieces together and try to come to grips with what happened. It's not something that, uh, that we, we really enjoyed, that's for sure. So many people have now done this climb. They've climbed Everest. And as you said, the mentality going into it is that it's supposed to be this incredible crowning achievement. But now, if you were to speak to another climber who said, I want to do Everest, would you say that it's worth it? Is it the feat that it once was? Or has now the popularity of the climb created such a danger to do the climb that it's just not worth it anymore? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Honestly, I I think the challenge is a good one. I think it's worth doing and trying to achieve and strive for, but it requires a certain amount of experience. It requires a certain amount of training and it requires a certain mentality that maybe some people on the mountain don't have. The reason why is it's, I can tell you it's difficult. I can say it's a difficult mountain, but I know that in my heart, no one will understand how difficult it is until you're actually here. And despite the fact that Everest is becoming more commercialized and there's more support and there's, there's better technology and better clothes and better weather prediction, it is still a very, very difficult mountain. And I think, you know, the one guy that wakes up or girl and wakes up and says, I want to climb Everest, I think that's a valid goal to have, but you need to, to go to other mountains first to know what you're getting into. Because when you're on that fixed line or when you're up at high altitude and people are waiting behind you, it's your responsibility to be able to move fast. And if you can't move fast, then you shouldn't be on the mountain because you're putting everybody else's lives at risk. One thing that fascinates me about climbing Mount Everest is the morality that those climbers have to face, the ethics of climbing Mount Everest. You described seeing people walking past others who, who were literally dying. They were begging for oxygen, begging for help. I don't think that I could do that, that I could just walk past them. But I also understand how human nature is and how, you know, we never really know how we'd act until we're under those extreme conditions. So while I can say I don't think that I would do that, I don't actually know what I would do unless I was there. But you have been there. You were literally in that position. Does it make sense to you when you see someone walk past someone who's dying and say, I cannot help you, I'm trying to make it to the summit? I think it's a very hard, it's a very hard call. I mean, I am a strong believer to say that when you're at your lowest, the action you take defines you as a person. So if you're the person who walks past someone in need, 
because you just care about the summit and that's your own choice. And if you can live with that at the end of the day, then so be it. But if you're the person who wants to, decides to stop and tries to help, then I think, I think that elevates you to another level. It is, it is a really hard decision because people spend a lot of money to climb this mountain. And if they get compromised because of somebody else or because they decide to help, I mean, who am I to say, you know, what decision they should make? In my heart, I would stop and help. And that's what I try to do and I strive for. I try to do the best I can when I summited. I gave up oxygen bottles. I shared my oxygen when people ran out. I can look back on the actions I did, and I can be proud of what those decisions I made, but I can't say the same for everybody else. How is the rest of your team doing now? You talked about that, you know, you're all still coming coming to reason with what you've experienced. How is Cam, Rolf, Jamie, Arthur, Nuru, the other Sherpas, how are they doing today? I can honestly say we're kind of all broken. I mean, Jamie made a really good call and turned around an hour away from the summit because he knew he didn't have enough oxygen. He's kind of crushed because he didn't make summit, but he knows that he made the right call because he would have been one of those people in dire need and have help. Arthur and Sheena and Cam, they summited, but Cam has really bad frostbite. But it's bittersweet, right? Because we lost a member of our team. We lost Kevin, and he was a, we spent the last two months bonding together, eating together, sleeping together, everything. And it's not just you know, knowing someone for two months and meeting them like, you know, at the store or going out for dinner. We're living 24 seven together as a team. And we don't have one of the, one of our team members now so that it kind of spoils the whole summit. It's going to take a lot of reflection to think about uh, what had happened and transpired. Yeah, we're, we're absolutely crushed. And same thing with Ralph. I mean, Ralph, you know, he did, do very heroic deeds. He saved lives, but he still lost a client. He still lost one of his climbers and he couldn't help him. It's just, it's, it's absolutely crushing for all of us. Have you had a chance to speak with Kevin's family yet? Uh, I have not. Um, the expedition company has been in contact with his family and they're doing that. Um, but you know, I, I hope to uh, give his family everything that I have that I had, you know, taken of Kevin. I mean, photos. I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I feel very privileged because I was the last person to spend a tent with him. We did an audio uh, update that I did over satellite phone for Summers of Hope together. I took a video with him as well at Camp 3. You know, I was the last person to spend, like, a lot of meaningful time with him. And then when I was ascending and I heard that he passed, I mean, it crushed me. So, But I have... I have that stuff that I want to give his family. I, I truly respect him. He's the nicest Irishman person, mountaineer, that I had ever met. He was so humble. He's so experienced and so humble about all the stuff he's done. It was incredible. And I miss him a lot already. What does the future hold for you now? Are you going to come back to Canada again? Or where do you, where do you see yourself going from here? So um, I'll be uh, back in Canada. You know, I've completed the challenge. 
like my profession is actually I'm a, I'm a dentist for the Canadian Armed Forces. So I'm actually uh, kind of starting a bit of a new life. They're sending me back to school to become a specialist for, for the Canadian Forces. And uh, I'm going to kind of go back to normal life. But at the same time, I'm going to use the platform I've had over the last nine years trying to climb the seven summits to continue to encourage um, youth and people of all ages actually to keep continuing to push the boundaries of what they think they can achieve. Because the whole reason behind my seven summits push started nine years ago was to motivate myself and others to try to aim for higher achievement, you know, to, to push the boundaries of what you think you could do. Because nine years ago when I said I was going to climb the seven summits, people laughed at me. My family didn't believe my friends didn't believe, but every single summit that I had done every step of the way over the nine years, people around me started to believe. And you know what happened? People around me started to want to achieve more too. And that's what it's all about. It's about making yourself better. And it doesn't have to be Everest. You know, it could be anything you want. You know, you just put your mind to it. And like when, when people say it's not possible, no, you, you, you pick your tools up and you keep on working and it's going to work out. Eleven people have died this climbing season, making it one of the deadliest to date. And experts say as more adventurers set their sights on the most unforgiving place on Earth, much of the danger has become man-made. We need to have a much stricter requirements on who climbs Mount Everest. 381 permits were issued this season out of Nepal at $11,000 apiece, and no proof of mountaineering experience required, sparking debate on if and how it should be regulated. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Wright-Meyer, with special thanks to Pippa Reed this week, who helped us connect with Chris. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts from. Give us a rating as well as a review and contact us on either Twitter or email at thisiswhy or thisiswhy at curiouscast.ca. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week.